Amen. You may be seated. As you're taking your seats, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we arrive at 2 Samuel chapter 6. And as you're turning there, let me just give you the good news from last night. I want to thank all those who participated in any form or fashion last night in our chili cook-off uh, for missions. We were able to raise over uh, $2,300 uh, through that endeavor. Thank you so very much for your contributions and your assistance. As we're coming to 2 Samuel chapter 6, I want you to be thinking with me about a place just a few miles up the road. And that place is called, I think, Burkdale Village. All right, got it in your mind, Burkdale Village? We're on, we're on Samfur. We're heading west. We go to that red light, and we turn right, right? And we find ourselves on that thoroughfare uh, through what is known as Burkdale Village. Since my college days, I've had a little bit of an interest in city planning. And so when we first moved to Huntersville, I paid particular attention to the way Burkdale Village is arranged, how it's set up. Okay, we've turned off of Sanford. We're on that main thoroughfare. And as we drive on that main thoroughfare, I believe we pass by a bank, uh, maybe a, a, a drugstore, uh, some buildings. And then as we go on that main thoroughfare, tree line, beautiful, well done, well arranged. We have shops, right? In restaurants on the bottom level, we've got those apartments above the shops. Then we come to basically the center of Burkdale Village, and we've got that roundabout, right? And in that roundabout, I think there's a gazebo, if I'm not mistaken, and there's a fountain or place for, for kids to play. And all around that circle, we have what? Restaurants. And then we continue on the tree-lined uh, main thoroughfare, and we head to the terminus. And what is at the end? It's a movie theater, isn't it? It's a movie theater. Well laid out, well structured sort of village, town. What's it mimicking? A real town, right? A real village. And it's beautiful in so many ways. And I must say I enjoy going there from time to time. I particularly enjoy being there on a, a late, late summer afternoon, early summer evening, and hearing the kids squeal for joy as they're playing in that fountain there in the center. Or I like looking at people sitting at their cafe tables uh, outside of the restaurant watching other people. It's fun watching people watch other people. <laughs> you know, they're at Bricks or they're at Cava. Or I like being at the, at the Terminus and hearing excited people going into the movie theater, excited about the movie that they want to see, or coming out and they are excited because of what they have seen. It's in many ways, it's idyllic. But I want you to compare that to a village or a town in old New England, or maybe in old England, or maybe even in the old south, a, a, a town like Huntersville in the past. Huntersville, particularly as it used to be oriented back this way, along the railroad track, and Main Street's behind us, right? Think about the way such towns and villages have been arranged. You, you come in, you come again on, on a sort of a main street, and it may have trees along the way. You may even have, particularly if you're in New England uh, or in England, you may have a, a town lawn, a town green, 
and you'll go along and there might be some shops and there might be a little diner or uh, depending on what sort of town you're in, maybe a tavern. And, and their homes kind of interspersed behind and around and you keep on going and as you look on that street maybe you'll come to a circle and maybe there's a town monument or maybe even a, 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 a courthouse sort of building, a court building. But you continue on and if your eyes continue looking down that main street, what do they see at the terminus? And, and your eyes see this building and the architecture of the building make your eyes go up and up and up and look into the heavens. What is typically at the terminus of such a town or a village in New England or Old England? A church. A church. There's much that a town's plan tells us about the views of its populace. A movie theater instead of a church. A movie theater instead of a church. A bank instead of a church. I wonder if there's any place for God in Burkdale's architecture. Faithful Israelites probably were wondering uh, a similar sort of thing as King David was now enthroned in Jerusalem. As King David was now king of all 12 tribes of Israel. As he was now in Jerusalem, and yet the ark of God, last heard of in 1 Samuel chapter 7, had been stored away in the house of Abinadab. Will David act like all the other Near Eastern kings? And would he take upon himself divine sovereign privileges? Or would he submit himself to the king of kings? Would David be the center of Jerusalem? Would David be the center of the 12 tribes of Israel? Would his house be at the center of all Israeli life, if I might use that word? Would a, would a government house be at the center of life? Or would God be the ruling center of all of Israel's life? I wonder... Is there any place for God in the Israel of King David? Well, let's see. Chapter 6 gives us the answer to such a question. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. David again gathered all the chosen of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him, from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. What kind of king will David be? This chapter gives us David's intention. This chapter gives us David's intention of the king he desired to be. He desired to be a king under the great sovereign Yahweh. Under the king of kings and lord of lords. And his desire to bring the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem 
reveals that intention. But let's remind ourselves of what the ark was, of what the ark was about, or, or better, what the ark represented, what the ark of the covenant, what the ark of the Lord represented. What was the ark? Yes, it was a box of acacia wood with wonderful gold all, all around it. Yes, it was a box, but it was more. Put, your, put a bookmark here in 2 Samuel and turn with me back to Numbers chapter 10. Numbers, one of those books that we seldom look at, Numbers chapter 10. What was the ark? What was it all about? Numbers chapter 10, uh, glance down at the end of that chapter to verse 33. So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise or, or advance, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Advance, O Lord, or return, O Lord. When the ark went out, advance, O Lord. When the ark returned, return, O Lord. Now this clad in gold, very fancy box, wasn't God. But brothers and sisters, it was so closely identified with God that when the priests would carry it out, leading Israel, Moses would proclaim, advance, O Lord. When the priests would bring it back, he would say, return, O Lord. The ark, you see, was a sacrament of sorts. It pointed to something else. It signified something else. It signified the very presence of the Almighty with his people Israel. To bring it then to Jerusalem, David was saying, O Lord, dwell among your people. Be at the center of the life of Israel. There's more to remember about the ark and how it actually signified God. It signified God in at least three major ways, beautiful ways. The first way is it signified his sovereignty. It signified that God was king. Second, it signified his desire to be reconciled with sinful Israel. And third, it signified his very revelation to his people. You see, the, the, a part of the elaborate design of the ark were the representation of angels, right? Cherubim at the top with their wings spread out over the lid of the ark. What did the author of Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6, say back in verse 2? The ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits, what? Enthroned on the cherubim. Now the imagery is either of the ark being the divine footstool, of Almighty God, as if our Lord, if our uh, Lord is, is pictured anthropomorphically as, as a being with feet, the ark was either like a footstool upon which he rested his feet, or it was his very throne, and he sat enthroned between the cherubim. 
Either way, it's a symbol of royalty. Either way, the ark is a symbol of his divine sovereignty. But there's more. According to the law of Moses, and you will remember this if you know your Old Testament law, according to the law of Moses, what would the high priest do once a year? The high priest would go very carefully into the what? Holy of Holies behind the curtain. And what would be in the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. And the high priest would take the blood from the sin offering for the people of God and he would do what with that blood? Sprinkle it. Sprinkle it on the lid of the ark and before the ark. What was that symbolizing? That there is a sacrifice for the sin of God's people and God seeks to be reconciled with such sinners. Confess your sin and the priest goes in and makes that action by sprinkling the blood. Reconciliation. Divine reconciliation. But there's more. The, the Ark of the Covenant was a box. It had a lid on it. What was inside? Well, among the things that were inside the Ark were the what? The tablets of the law of the covenant. The tablets of God's revelation to his people. So what is the Ark symbolizing in that way? Divine revelation. In other words, dear ones, to bring the Ark of the covenant to Jerusalem meant that David desired for God's revelation to be at the center of the life of a reconciled Israel under the divine sovereignty of Almighty God. That the revelation of God will be at the center of the life of a reconciled people under the sovereignty of God and David was but just a steward of that king. But now we've, we're on this side of the cross. So think with me on this side of the cross, brothers and sisters. This side of the revelation of Jesus' first advent. We know that that ancient gold-clad box not only celebrated, not only signified, symbolized Yahweh's revelation, reconciliation, and sovereignty, but supremely it pointed to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It pointed to Jesus, our great what? Our great prophet, revealing to us the word of God, the covenant word of a gracious God. It pointed to Jesus, our what? Our great high priest, who through his blood shed on the cross, opens the way into the holy of holies for sinners such as us to be reconciled with the holy, thrice holy God. This, this ark pointed to whom? Jesus Christ, our great king and sovereign. Our prophet, our priest, and our king. To bring the ark into Jerusalem, whether David fully grasped it or not, meant that Israel and David needed Jesus. They needed Jesus. That Jesus was to be the very center of their life. I wonder, is there really this central place for Jesus in our lives? In our lives individually? In our life corporately together as 
a portion of the great bride of Christ. Who dwells among us, Harp? Is it Emmanuel? Are our eyes always turned upon Jesus? Is He and only He at the center of everything we do? Is He and only He at the center of, of everything we say and proclaim as a congregation? Everything we think, everything we feel. In other words, if you scratched us, will we bleed Jesus? Now, no, we say it. We claim it. We profess it that Jesus is Lord. He's the king of this congregation. And I certainly hope that's the case. A movie theater is where a church should be in Burkdale Village. Is there someone or something else where Jesus should be in your life? In our life together? Back to 2 Samuel 6. It was a rocking parade, wasn't it? It was a boisterous parade, wasn't it? It was a loud parade. At least up until a point. And then something happens. Verse 3. <coughs> and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. I'm not sure if they were Presbyterians. <laughs> they were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. I mean, just imagine the parade. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen had stumbled. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? The oxen had stumbled, the ark looks like it's about to fall out, off, and Uzzah reaches out to stabilize it. Verse 7. You know, if you were writing the Bible, you wouldn't put verse 7 in there, brothers or sisters. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. You can imagine the, 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 the loud parade and all of a sudden things start quieting down. And all eyes turn to this disturbance. And there's this guy fallen, writhing on the road in these days. The first question for David and Israel was, I wonder, is there any place for God in the Israel of King David? The follow-up question is this, I wonder, is there any place for this God in the Israel of King David? Wow, 
It seems like all us is doing is trying to keep the ark from falling on the road, falling off the cart. Was God some fickle, irritable, cosmic killjoy? What are we to make of a passage like this? Brothers and sisters, the key is in verses 3 and 4. 3 and 4. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. By the way, that's the way the Philistines do things. And brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, i.e. their priests, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Now again, i got you, got to get you to think back in your Bibles. Remember long ago, God had given very, very specific instructions on how the Ark of the Covenant was to be treated and how it was to be transported. It was to be treated with reverence. Why? Because again, what did it signify? The very presence of Almighty God who's holy, holy, holy. You don't come flippantly before the ark. It wasn't something to be handled haphazardly with no thought, no care. You just didn't saunter in in whatever you wanted to be wearing and do whatever you wanted to do all around the ark and look at it. Again, the ark symbolized the living and holy God. As one commentator summarized the rules about how you cared for the ark, how you handled the ark, he says the rules were no touch, no look, no cart. No touch, no look, no cart. Again, only the high priest could see it but once a year. Only one person was allowed to go near it once a year. Sprinkle blood on it. And if he did that in an irreverent way, what would happen to him? He'd be struck down. And if it was time to move camp, what did they do? With all the furniture, including the earth, they covered them. And the priest would slide what? Through the rings attached to the ark. Poles. And the Kohathites would do what? Carry the ark. Not put it on some newfangled technology known as an ox cart. They'd carry it. The rules were no touch, no look, no cart. And here we have a priest who should have known better, looking, not carrying, and reaching out to what? Touch it. How does a priest get to that point? How does a priest get to the point where his reflex action is to try to stabilize it and touch the ark? That reflex action is evidence of a habit. It's symptomatic of his way of thinking. This was his way of thinking. Here was his way of thinking. He managed the ark. Or maybe more to the point, 
remembering what the ark symbolizes. He managed God. He managed Yahweh. He took care of Yahweh. Let that sink in. Does the sense, does the sense of hideousness come to mind when you think of that? Eugene Peterson rightly wrote, We do not take care of God. He takes care of us. Uzzah is the person who, instead of losing himself in the worship of God, has God in a box and officiously assumes responsibility for keeping God safe. Keeping God safe from the mud and the dust of this world. Pearson goes on, he says, men and women keep showing up in religious precincts who take it upon themselves the task of protecting God from the vulgarity of sinners and the ignorance of commoners. Ouch. How dare us. How dare Lee. I wonder, is there any place for this kind of holy God among us? Or do we view ourselves as sufficiently holy? Sufficiently holy, we can handle Jesus any way we so choose. We can treat him trivially. Our own God in the box that we'll bring out when we need him. Maybe you're tempted to think because of bad teaching elsewhere that, well, this was the unpredictable God of the Old Testament, a God just of wrath. And our New Testament God isn't like that. Well, go with me and we'll end here. Hebrews chapter 10. Glance down, verse 19. Notice what the author of Hebrews is talking about. He's talking about entering into the presence of God. He calls us to come boldly to the throne of grace because of what Jesus has done. Yes, we're to come. Yes, we're to come into the Holy of Holies. Yes, we're to be in the presence of God. But we never go into the presence of God casually, irreverently, presumptuously. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And here's the clincher, verse 31. Jonathan Edwards made it famous by his sermon. It is a fearful thing to fall into hands of a living, the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God. I have a friend in Georgia. Uh, I love him. He was a good boss. He's a believer, professing believer. But I cringe every time he posts, and I've heard him say it before. I cringe every time he says something like, Well, I'll just have to trust the big guy in the sky to handle this for me. I know what he means, but how utterly profane that sort of language is. Why do we seek to have a worship service that has a note of reverence to it? Because we find ourselves where? We find ourselves standing on holy ground. When we gather together, and our call to worship. Brothers and sisters, never forget, we are in the presence of the thrice holy God of the universe. And we never saunter in casually. We never trivialize this great privilege. We never stick out our hand and hold up the ark. Am I ever guilty of such profanity? In all due honesty, yes. Are you? I wonder, is there any place for this kind of dangerous God among us? Or do we presume upon our God in a box? A movie theater is where the church should be in Burkdale Village. Is there someone or something else where the thrice holy Jesus should be in your life and in our life? Let's pray. Father, where there is presumption, where there is that which is profane in our thinking, in our feeling, in our words, and in our doing, convict us. Lead us to that place where we reverence the name 
of our great and our glorious prophet, priest, and king, where we rejoice that the one who is holy could eliminate us right now and cast us into an eternal lake of fire and yet has shed his blood for our sins so that we might become a part of his glorious bride. Help us to now approach the throne of grace with reverence, with boldness, and yes, with joy. With a desire that others would do the same. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.